On the morning of September 14, 1942, the German 71st Division entered downtown Stalingrad on a two-mile-wide front. Captain Gerhard Munk personally led the 3rd Battalion, 194th Infantry Regiment as it tried to cross several city blocks and gain the riverfront. Until now, his men had suffered mostly from heat or occasional Russian rear guards, and Munk thought their chances of reaching the Volga by nightfall were excellent. But once they reached the congested avenues of the city, casualties rose sharply. From third and fourth floor windows, snipers riddled the columns, and hidden light artillery blew gaps in the ranks. The Germans found few places to hide, for they always had to force the battle and dig the enemy from the ruins of the buildings. Still, by 2 p.m., the 3rd Battalion had closed to within a few hundred yards of the main railroad station, just off Red Square, and Mulk received orders to seize the ferry landing at the Volga. Despite mounting losses, he was still confident. His men had captured several Russian couriers running through the streets with handwritten messages. Sensing that the Soviet 62nd Army's telephone communications had been broken down, and that it was now increasingly dependent on isolated small groups to contain the Germans, Munch assumed that his depleted battalion could manage the last half mile toward their goal. A group of NKVD soldiers braced for the final German thrust to the river. Drawn up in an arc around the main ferry across the Volga, the 60 soldiers waited for their commander, Colonel Petrokov, to return from a scouting mission along Pensenskaya Street. To figure out where the enemy was trying to break through, Petrokov and his two aides walked as far north as the 9th of January Square. The roar of small arms fire was rolling over them from a distance, but they had neither seen a German nor heard any close-range shooting. The square was deserted, and Petrokov stood beside an abandoned car to assess his situation. Submachine gun bullets suddenly whistled through the car windows, forcing Petrikov to duck for cover. Almost instantly, German shells exploded up and down the square and he was knocked unconscious. Rescued by his men, he awoke in a tunnel at the edge of the Volga, where he lay under an overcoat and heard that the Germans had rushed for the river and taken a series of buildings near the shore. From the House of Specialists, an apartment house for engineers, from the five-story state bank, and from the beer factory, the Germans were hollering, Rus, Rus, Volga Bull Bull, Russians will drown in the Volga. Petrokov staggered to the tunnel entrance and looked out at the river for some sign of the 13th Guard Division. But the time for their crossing was still hours away, and he had to keep the Germans from the ferry until then. When a small Russian boy wandered into the tunnel, the curious Petrokov asked his name. Kolya, he replied, and told the colonel that the enemy had sent him to spy on Russian strength between the House of Specialists and the Volga. Petrikov smiled and asked Kolya to tell him instead about the Germans. Kolya knew exactly who his captors were. The 1st Battalion, 194th Infantry Regiment, 71st Division, commanded by a Captain Ginderling. Protecting Gerhard Munch's left flank, Ginderling was also trying to sweep to the main ferry before dark. As dusk approached, Ginderling sent his troops from the beer factory toward the ferry pier, just 750 yards away. 
Petrikov's 60 men formed a skirmish line around the landing, fighting hard, although their ammunition was dangerously low. Suddenly, a motorboat appeared from across the Volga, carrying cases of ammunition and grenades. Resupplied, Petrikov's NKVD soldiers now prepared to counterattack. The colonel had found a 76mm gun on a side street, and while he tried to learn its parts, he issued the order to move out when he fired the fifth shot from his new artillery piece. Petrikov aimed the weapon at the state bank, loaded the first shell very carefully, and shot directly into the cement building. As he readied another round, a launch chugged in behind him, carrying men of the 13th Guards. But the Germans had seen them too, and the launch was quickly surrounded by explosions. Bracketed by gunfire, Colonel Yellen, commander of the Guards' 42nd Regiment, jumped off the boat into knee-deep water and ran up the embankment. When he met Petrikov and heard that he was firing at the state bank, Yellen angrily told him to stop because his own men were about to storm the building for hand-to-hand -hand combat. The situation was still perilous, but no Russian was aware of one significant fact. The Germans attempting to drown them in the river were themselves on the verge of collapse. Near the railroad station, Captain Munk counted his ranks and realized that the one day's fighting in Stalingrad had cost him most of his battalion. Almost 200 of his men lay dead or wounded on the streets leading to Red Square. Now the railroad station was an even more deadly obstacle. Although the Russians had not occupied it in strength, Munk was instinctively afraid of it. Hidden inside its vast network of tracks, cabooses, and freight cars, a small group of snipers could tear his reduced force to pieces. He decided to bypass it and called in an airstrike. It came in quickly, but the Stukas missed the target and dropped their bombs in the midst of Munk's troops. As darkness fell, the captain assembled his battalion in the U-shaped, unfinished government house where, from the terrace, he first saw the Volga. He made another headcount and found he had less than 50 men left to take the ferry. Recognizing that his 3rd Battalion no longer had the power to accomplish that on his own, Munk told his soldiers to take cover and settle in for the night. That story comes from Enemy at the Gates by William Craig, a detailed description of the Battle of Stalingrad published in 1973, and which shares little more than a title with the movie of the same name. Welcome to Beyond Barbarossa, the first English language podcast in the world to focus on the Eastern Front of World War II. I'm Scott Burry, podcasting to you, as usual, from the Redbeard Studio on traditional Anishinaabe Algonquin territory, also called Ottawa. My pronouns are, it doesn't matter. Call me what you like. Just don't call me to warn me about a package addressed to me by border services. Last episode was a talk with Antony Bartway and Romeo Kokriatsky of the Ukraine Without Hype podcast. We discussed Ukraine during the German occupation of the Second World War and today during its occupation or partial occupation by Russia. Thanks again, Romeo and Anthony, for your time and insights. This episode returns to the chronological narrative where the podcast tracks the progress of the Second World War in the East with an 81-year delay, which means this episode is going to focus on the early autumn 
1942. The previous narrative episode, which I got to at the beginning of this second season of the podcast, was all about how the Germans launched Case Blue, their summer 1942 campaign that was supposed to accomplish what Operation Barbarossa had tried to do originally. That is, move the front to the Volga River and thus, according to Nazi mythology, complete the conquest of Europe. In the process, this would destroy the hated Bolshevik state and turn the area of the Soviet Union into living space for German people and the people who lived in the Soviet Union into slaves. But the real objective of Case Blue, the summer 1942 operation, was the oil fields of the Caucasus, centered on the cities of Maikop, Grozny, and Baku. The Germans did reach Maikop on the Caucasus foothills by the 9th of August 1942, only to find them on fire, destroyed by the retreating Red Army. The Soviets stopped the Germans before they reached the city of Grozny in the middle of the isthmus between the Caspian and Black Seas. And Baku on the Caspian coast remained a Nazi dream. Now that describes the initial plan for Case Blue. But how did these Germans end up in Stalingrad, far to the north of those oil fields? Well, if you look at a map, which you'll find on the podcast's website, you'll see that Stalingrad, now called Volgograd, is on the Volga River. And it was a key transportation point for Caucasian oil and other resources, including from the Lend-Lease program, going up to the Soviet industrial heartland and thus to the front lines. Stalingrad was a key point, an essential way station on that Lend-Lease supply line that came from Iran over the Caspian Sea and was the only year-round route for supplies from the West. Now, as I mentioned in episode 31, back about the beginning of Case Blue, when Case Blue was first planned, Stalingrad was, quote, only a spot on a map, for, end quote, for the German generals. But as he so often did, Hitler changed the plans for this operation in mid-execution. On 23rd July 1942, so this is a couple of weeks into the operation, Fuhrer Directive 45 split Army Group South, that army group, that group of armies that was responsible for carrying out Operation Blue and capture those oil fields. It split them into two smaller groups. Army Group A under Field Marshal Wilhelm List went south to get those oil fields. While Army Group B, comprising the 6th Army under the newly appointed General Friedrich Paulus, and the 4th Panzer Army under General Hermann Hott, with the support of Wolfram von Richthofen's 8th Air Fleet, were charged with destroying Stalingrad. Not capturing it, just destroying it so that it couldn't be used anymore. Some historians have described the battle that was coming up, the Battle of Stalingrad, as a mistake or a trap. The Germans ended up in Stalingrad, according to one, almost by accident. It would turn out to be the farthest penetration eastward by Germany and its European allies and puppets. But 
that's getting ahead of the story. Before I go on, it's time for our regular feature, What's Going On Elsewhere in the War? Let's set the Wayback Machine for mid-September 1942. In the Pacific, Australian and U.S. forces pushed a Japanese attack off the island of Papua in the Battle of Milne Bay. Elsewhere on Papua, the Japanese continued their advance on the Kolkata Trail toward Port Moresby. On 15 September, the Japanese sank the light carrier USS Wasp off Guadalcanal. Fighting near the island in the Solomon Chain would last for another six months. On 10th September, the Royal Air Force conducted a major incendiary air raid on Dusseldorf, Germany. 12th September was Rosh Hashanah. On that day, 4,000 Polish Jews were sent to the Belzec death camp and murdered. On 3rd October, the Germans launched the first man-made object into space, the A-4 rocket which reached 84.5 kilometers, or about 50 miles altitude. In North Africa, Rommel's Africa Corps had taken Tobruk by August 1942, and on 23rd September, Rommel was airlifted to Germany for medical treatment. One month later, he would rush back to take command of the North African forces once again, as Australian and British forces began the Second Battle of El Alamein. To sum up, this confirms what I've said in several previous episodes. The summer of 1942 was the high water mark for the Axis in every theater of war, Europe, the Pacific, and Africa. But as you know, when water reaches its high point, it begins to recede. This starts slowly. But still, you can see, by the autumn of 1942, the Axis's power was beginning to fray around the edges. The Battle of Midway in June 1942, along with the Battle of Guadalcanal and the Solomon Islands campaign, are often described as the turning point in the war in the Pacific. In late September, the Australians began to get counterattack on the Kokoda Trail on New Guinea. In Africa, Rommel and the Africa Corps had chased the British across Cyrenaica to the Egyptian border and taken the fortress of Tobruk. But the Second Battle of El Alamein was a victory for the British and Commonwealth forces in North Africa. UK Prime Minister Winston Churchill said, quote, It was not the end, not even the beginning of the end, but possibly the end of the beginning. End quote. And no, I'm not going to attempt a Churchill impression. Later in 1950, Churchill had this to say about the Second Battle of El Alamein. Quote, it may almost be said, before Alamein, we never had a victory. After Alamein, we never had a defeat. End quote. But of course, these battles, though critical to the history of the war, were dwarfed by the campaigns waged on Europe's eastern edge between Germany and the USSR. Stalingrad, the new goal to destroy. As I described in episode 31, the Germans crossed the Don River and sped across the Kuwan Steppe in days in August 1942. They reached Stalingrad on 23rd August with a massive initial air raid 
by the whole 4th Luftflotte, or air fleet. And this caught the civilian population completely by surprise. But the Soviet command had not been completely useless all this time. In true communist style, they had been reorganizing. They renamed the Southwestern Front. The Front is a group of armies in the Red Army at the time. They renamed it the Stalingrad Front, comprising four armies. Also defending the city was the Dawn Front under our old friend Konstantino Rokossovsky. It had three armies situated north of the Volga and Don rivers. But the Stalingrad Front was in the point of the action, especially the 62nd Red Army under General Vasily Chukov. Now, Stalingrad, as I mentioned once before, so if you really want more information, go back to, uh, to episode 31. But anyway, Stalingrad, as I described in episode 31, lies entirely along the right or western bank of the Volga River, just upstream of its last great bend toward the Caspian Sea. Unlike most cities, its layout is long and skinny, just on one side of the river. In 1942, its southern end was a residential area anchored by massive grain elevators near the river. Going north, through this residential area, you enter a uh, you encounter a gorge called Saritsa, where the Saritsa River, which is from a Turkish word for the river, has nothing to do with the Tsar, where that river then flows from the steppe to the Volka, cutting a pretty deep and steep gorge as it gets through the city. It's in that gorge that General Yardmenko and later General Chukov set up their headquarters to defend the city. North of that is the downtown area. To the west, the outskirts are, like in most cities, mostly residential. In the middle is the main railway station. The eastern side, close to the river, has things like the Gorky Theater, the Univermag Department Store, Red Square, 9th of January Square, government and office buildings, the beer factory, here on stolen indigenous land, we call that a brewery, and a building that would soon become notorious, Pavlov's House. I'll get to that. Bordering the north side of downtown is the Krutoy Gorge, which then rises to the famous Mamey of Kurgan, a huge hill over an ancient Tatar burial ground. Its summit gave a great view over the city and the Volga, and the steppe beyond, which meant it was an extremely valuable strategic position for both sides. And that meant that fighting over it was savage throughout the months-long battle for the city. North of that is the factory district, with rail spurs and loops that brought workers from their housing in the area to work zones, as well as to move industrial inputs and products. The factories have become legendary. The Lazar Chemical Works, the Red October Steel Plant, the Barakadi Gun Factory, and the Stalingrad Tractor Factory, one of the places that made the best tank of this war, the T-34. On 12 September, General Yaremenko, commander of the Stalingrad Front, appointed General Vasily Chukov as commander of the 62nd Army, in charge of the defense of the city itself, the guy right in the middle of the action. He reportedly said that he saw his duty, quote, to defend the city 
or die in the attempt. End quote. The Germans, by the middle of September, crowed that they had surrounded Stalingrad. But they only really surrounded it on the western side, so to me, that's not surrounding. Other than bombardment, the Germans never reached across the Volga. So supply from the east and north of the river was crucial to the Soviet survival. However, by this time, mid-September 1942, the 62nd Army, the force that's in the city fending off the Germans as best it can, was down to just 20,000 soldiers, men and women, by the way, with 90 tanks and 700 mortars and very, very few planes. The 6th Army, the German force at the point of the attack, brought two full corps, in total some 360,000 soldiers, with 3,000 artillery pieces and 500 tanks, plus other armored fighting vehicles and up to 1,000 planes. Friedrich Paulus, general in command of the German 6th Army, had told Hitler that his men could take the city and drive the Red Army out in 24 hours. On 12 September, the Germans began with a typically intense aerial bombardment. Well, intense isn't an adequate word. In Stalingrad, the fateful siege, 1942-1943, Antony Bivor quotes a Red Army corporal, quote, A mass of Stukas came over us, and after their attack, one could not believe that even a mouse was left alive, end quote. The bombing was so heavy that a fine gray dust coated everything and everyone in the city. It also cut telephone and other communication lines so often and in so many places that General Chukov only managed to connect with his commander, Yermenko, once during that day. The people sent out to repair the brakes had little chance of survival. The runners sent to replace the function of the telephone lines had even less. The Germans began their advance into the streets of the city on 13 September. But they ran into resistance that they didn't expect. It was not just stiff or stubborn. It became iconic of the entire war in the East. Despite little to no chance of success or survival, Soviet men and women fought ferociously for every inch of ground up to the banks of the Volga. German infantry advanced down the Tsaritsyn Gorge, firing on the entrance to Yaromenko's former headquarters and jarring the refugees hiding in the various tunnels. By this point, Chukov had decided to move his headquarters farther north into the factory district. The 71st Infantry Division, the one described in the vignette that opened this episode, drove into the center of the city, intent on reaching the Volga. Meanwhile, the 395th Infantry Division reached the western slope of the Mamiev Kurgan, that big hill in the middle of the city. They reached the crest, but the Soviets managed to hold the eastern slopes and prevented the Germans from using the height to shell the river and the far bank with impunity. By 16th September, two days into the ground battle, the hill was a moonscape, lifeless, pitted with craters. The Germans captured the main railway station in the morning, and it changed hands twice more before an NKVD rifle battalion retook it in the afternoon. Meanwhile, Hermann Hoth's 4th Panzer Army, with two tank divisions and an infantry division, were approaching from the south. 
But the real danger was that the divisions in the central area would reach the riverbank and capture the main ferry landing, where reinforcements from farther east came into the city. Reinforcements like the 13th Guards Army, which had been ordered into the city from points east. In fact, Stalin and Stauffer were frantically throwing every army, every resource they could find down to the north and east side of the riverbank as some way to prevent Stalingrad from falling. On 14 September, the 10,000-strong 13th Guards Army gathered on the east bank of the river, hearing the sounds of bombardment and battle echoing over the water. Their orders to cross the river and repel the Germans. They were to leave behind their heavy weapons and bring only personal weapons, submachine guns and anti-tank rifles. One problem, a third of them, over 3,000 men, had no rifles. Maybe this is the source of that myth displayed in the film Enemy at the Gates. Before complete darkness came in, commander of the Guards Army, Colonel General Alexander Rudimtsev, ordered the crossing to begin. In every boat and watercraft they could scrounge up, they began moving over the river in relays, men on the first transit watching the flames and flashes of battle, hearing the sounds of shells and rifle fire, while men waiting on the east bank tried to calculate how long they had left before they had to make the trip. Time was of the essence, as the Germans were closing on the river bank and the ferry landing. But as they moved into the city that had once been an exemplar of communist urban planning, they found themselves fighting in a hell of their own creation. So, what do you say? Shall we join hands and go into hell together? Oh, oh okay. First, a short break. This is Beyond Barbarossa, the first and so far only English language podcast that focuses on the Eastern Front of World War II. And by now, you know I'm Scott Burry, writer and narrator. This podcast's only source of funding right now is you through Patreon. So if you like this podcast, why not subscribe or follow or whatever your preferred podcasting platform calls it? And please consider supporting it at any amount through Patreon. Visit beyondbarbarossa.ca and click on the Patreon link in the banner. Thanks. Did you know that the cappuccino was invented by a Ukrainian? Or that many first names, like Philip and Agatha, were brought to Western Europe by Ukrainian princesses? Or that a Ukrainian was the first female given the rank of officer in a modern army? Well, if you didn't, and even if you did... You can learn more about my podcast, Wandering the Edge, a podcast about Ukrainian history with a spot of travel, and all in English. And if you like Beyond Barbarossa as much as I do, because, well, it makes my life a whole lot easier since I don't have to do any episodes deep diving into the Eastern Front of the Second World War, please take a listen to Wandering the Edge for a deep dive into Ukrainian history, culture, and traditions. Find out more on wanderingtheedge.net. And now let's get back to Scott exploring and explaining the Eastern Front of the Second World War. 
Thanks for coming back. If you thought the first half of this episode was intense, well, strap in. We're diving into the hell of street fighting in Stalingrad in September 1942. The panzers and German infantry have penetrated into the city and reached, for a time anyway, the high point of the crest of the Mame of Kurgan, the huge hill in the middle of the city. From there, the Germans saw the first group of the 13th Guards Division crossing the Volga and opened fire with artillery, mortars, and machine guns. The panzers and German infantry have penetrated into the city. They saw the first group of the 13th Guards Division crossing the Volga and opened fire with artillery, mortars, and machine guns. At least one boat got a direct hit, killing men on board, drowning others who fell into the, into the river. When the surviving soldiers of the first wave of the 13th Guard reached the western bank, they did not bother fixing bayonets. They knew that the longer they stood still, the shorter their lives would be. They charged straight up to the Germans, who were, in some places, less than 100 meters away. Battalions from the 42nd Guards Regiment and NKVD divisions, already in the city, joined the attack and forced the Germans back to the main train station. See the map on the webpage for this episode. When the second wave of the 13th Guards arrived, they pushed the Germans back to the base of the Meme of Kurgan. Still, the Volga was within range of German artillery and mortars, which had a devastating effect on Soviet forces moving west into Stalingrad, as well as the evacuation of civilians and wounded to the east. Uh, a note on that, Stalin refused at first to evacuate the city's 400,000 strong civilian population before the Germans arrived. By mid-August, it was too late. Thousands were quickly stranded behind German lines when they reached the city. Tens of thousands died under the months-long air raids, artillery bombardment, and armored attack. People lived like rats in the rubble, including thousands of children. Ironically, the Germans' heavy bombardment intended to soften up the defenders, that means kill as many of them as possible at minimal risk to themselves, actually gave the Soviets more places to hide among the ruins. The Battle of Stalingrad quickly became a contest between small groups and individuals. In fact, the Germans started to call it Rattenkrieg, a war of rats. Soviet snipers became national heroes, a subject I'll get into in a future episode. But also, booby traps, mines, hidden anti-tank guns and tanks became chief Soviet tactics. German casualties were enormous, far higher than they expected even after their experience on the Eastern Front to this point. General Friedrich Polis suffered a case of dysentery that he was unable to shake throughout the battle. By September, he also had a facial tick that only got worse as the stress increased. I'll go into greater detail about General Friedrich Paulus in a future episode about Stalingrad. Yes, there are going to be several episodes about the Battle of Stalingrad. Its length and its scale make it worthy of, of that. Here we are, late September 1942. As the Germans grind forward ever closer to the river, the Red Army began to use the various forces and weapons to channel the Germans toward traps. 
right? So there's these buildings or the skeletons of buildings and ruins and streets blocked with rubble. So the Soviets can, by moving some rubble around and by cleverly, strategically placing their snipers and their anti-tank guns, encourage the Germans to move into particular channels. These channels would lead to traps like mines or a tank dug into the rubble and hidden. And when the panzer comes into view, the Russian tank fires. Red Army soldiers would dash out from the cover of rubble across the path of advancing panzers and drop mines almost under their treads. Many brave Red Army soldiers died that way. But the Soviets were quite good at creating a hell of their own. This falls under Stalin's order of not one step back. The commissars of the party took this more than literally. They started to characterize every retreat, every stumble, and every surrender as capitulation and cooperation with the enemy. Records that were finally released 50 years after the battle show the Soviets executed 13,500 of their own soldiers for cowardice. That's like a whole division. The charges were not just for retreating, but even for failing to shoot their own comrades who surrendered. On more than one occasion, Germans reported moving forward and firing on Red Army positions to protect other Red Army soldiers they had just taken prisoner. That's as we get toward the end of September 1942. Now, meanwhile, Herman Hoth's panzers are advancing from the south. And on the 18th of September, they reached the huge grain elevators that I mentioned at the southern end of the city. Grain elevators with their thick concrete walls make great fortifications. About 50 Red Army defenders hold up in these grain elevators. In addition to their personal rifles and submachine guns, they had two old Maxim machine guns and two Russian anti-tank rifles. Now, these anti-tank rifles are deceptively delicate-looking weapons, and they fire rounds that can take out a panzer if aimed right. My father-in-law, Maurice Burry, commanded a Red Army unit of anti-tank rifles in 1941. With these two machine guns, two anti-tank rifles, and their own submachine guns and, and own rifles, this small group of defenders in these grain elevators held off an entire panzer corps for two days. But the conditions they fought in were terrible. Being in a grain elevator, I don't know if you've ever been in one, but it's very dusty at the best of times. And repeated bombardment and shocks only rained down more choking grain dust on them. After two days, the defenders had used all of their grenades and anti-tank rounds and their own water. And when the Germans managed to put the machine guns out of commission and brought in yet more panzers to finish them off, the remaining Red Army soldiers decided to break out, leaving their own wounded behind. The Germans claimed a victory but it was a hollow claim, given their own losses. Also on September 18, 
the Soviet Dawn Front's three armies tried an attack on the Germans' northern flank. So along, you know, the next bend of the, of the Volga and the Don River. The idea was to relieve some of the pressure on Stalingrad. However, the Luftwaffe and the 14th Panzer Corps, fighting on the open steppe, which is the perfect environment for tanks and aircraft, repelled the Soviets. On 20th September, the 6th Army's headquarters bragged that the battle flag of the Reich, that garish white cross on a red background with the swastika superimposed in the middle, yeah, that ugly thing, it was flying over the Communist Party headquarters in Stalingrad. And three days later, the 23rd, so that's one month into the battle, the Germans claimed to have reached the banks of the Volga and cut off the former Red Army headquarters in the Tsaritsa Gorge. So, Stalingrad has been under siege and direct attack for a solid month. And there were still thousands or tens of thousands. It's hard to say. It's impossible to say how many exactly. There were still thousands of civilians trying to survive. These civilians, these non-soldiers, tried to shelter in the shattered buildings, in cellars, and in trenches dug by and then abandoned by one side or the other. Civilians even tried to hide in the shell craters on the ruined Mamey of Kurgan. Naturally, most of these people died. Author Anthony Beaver describes the battle at this point as virtually stationary annihilation. So, at this point, late September, Chukov had moved the Soviet guns, finally got authorization to do that, moved them to the east side of the river where they were less vulnerable, but could still hit German positions. These uh, artillery systems included the famous Katyusha multiple rocket launcher systems, also called Stalin's organs, which terrified the German troops because they could fire dozens. Each one fired dozens of rockets in quick succession. I put a picture on the website. Germans shelled and sank boats that were ferrying the wounded across the Volga. Russian poet and war correspondent Konstantin Simonov was in Stalingrad at this time. One day, he saw the body of a Russian woman still clinging to a charred piece of wood washed up on the riverbank. He wrote, quote, The Germans did this, did it in front of our eyes, and let them not ask for quarter from those who witnessed it. After Stalingrad, we shall give no quarter. End quote. Chillingly prophetic. With a large part of the city in their hands, the German occupiers forced Jews still living there to wear yellow stars and targeted them for summary execution or slave labor. The Germans also sought out, quote, suitable, unquote, Russians to send into forced labor farther west. This is as good a place as any to bring up the Hiwis. These were Hilfswillige, sorry for my mispronunciation of German. Anyway, these were auxiliary volunteers for the Germans drawn from the Soviet population across the entire Eastern Front from the Baltic to the Black Sea and the Volga River. According to historian Anthony Tucker Jones, most Hiwis were ethnically non-Russian, including Caucasians, Cossacks, Balts, and Ukrainians. So, roughly people who had um, some objection to living under communism. In Stalingrad, though, according to Anthony Bivor, 
While some were genuine volunteers, most were Soviet prisoners of war drafted from camps to make up shortages in manpower, primarily as laborers, but increasingly even in combat duties. End quote. By the autumn of 1942, several divisions of the 6th Army had as many Hiwis as German personnel. But those who volunteered, primarily from those groups who had suffered under communist oppression, were treated the same as German soldiers, or so the Germans claimed. They did receive the same rations, and they wore German uniforms. On September 30, Hitler gave another of his rally speeches at a sports stadium in Berlin. Remind you of anyone from this century? He claimed that no one would move the Germans from their place on the Volga. But the men and officers on the ground felt differently. For example, Lieutenant Colonel Helmut Grosskirth of the 6th Army, an anti-Nazi who had tried yet failed to save Jewish children from being murdered earlier, wrote in his diary, quote, Will Stalingrad turn into a second Verdun? This was a reference to the longest battle of the First World War, which resulted in some 143,000 German dead when they tried to take high ground that had already been heavily fortified by the French. Grosskirth's question was also chillingly prophetic. On September 27, the 6th Army began a huge offensive in the northern factory district of Stalingrad. But the Red October Steel Factory Complex and the Barakati Gun Factory turned out to be perfect fortresses. They were able to hide thousands of Red Army soldiers, even whole regiments. Now, as usual, this battle, this assault, started with what the Germans called a housewarming, an aerial bombardment by Stukas, followed by carpet bombing by Heinkel 111 medium bombers the next day. Then came shelling from guns and mortars before the infantry moved in. The infantry were surprised to find the 308th Rifle Division from Siberia, well dug in and hidden. These men actively counterattacked, jumping out from hidden positions. While this was costly, even wasteful of defenders' lives, it wore the Germans down. An even more effective tactic was the heavy artillery fire from across the river, and the 414th Anti-Tank Division, who had hidden their heavy guns in the rubble of the factories. On the second day of the battle, 28 September, two more Soviet regiments plus the remnants of the 39th Guards Division crossed the Volga to join the counterattack in the factories. The Germans brought in another infantry division and a panzer division, plus five combat engineer battalions in their quest for the Volga Bank. This is thousands more men, hundreds more tanks in a very small area. The Red Army soldiers fought beyond the point of stubborn, almost to the point of insanity. Bivor describes two men, two Soviet Red Army soldiers, each with one usable arm each pulling grenade pins with their teeth to throw them at the enemy. Also, sappers would run forward carrying anti-tank mines under their arms, quote, like loaves of bread, end quote. The casualties on both sides, the numbers, staggered their commanders. On 5th October, the ninth day of this particular sub-battle in the factory area, 
the Germans began a new attack, this time on the tractor plant at the very northern end of the city. See the map on the website. The 14th Panzer Division moved from the southwest side, while the 60th Motorized Division attacked from the west. Soviet Kutuchus across the river destroyed the 60th Battalions or 60th Division's battalions, but still, the Panzers managed to push the Red Army defenders back. The defenders' numbers were reduced steadily until they had very little ground left on the west side of the Great River. But then came a lull in the fighting on the 6th of October. The 6th Army had to pause because of its own heavy losses of ammunition, equipment, weapons, and men. One division was down to 535 fighting troops from its original strength of over 15,000. But then on the 8th of October, Hitler sent the 6th Army some new orders. Hey guys, he wanted them to prepare another major assault to begin no later than the 14th of October, so a week later. General Paulus and his senior officers were dismayed. Still, orders were orders, and the Germans began making preparations. Says Anthony Beaver, quote, The Germans, with shouted taunts and leaflets, made no secret of their preparations. The only question was the precise objective. And that objective? Well, we'll get to that in the next episode, in two weeks. Thank you for listening to Beyond Barbarossa, the podcast about the Eastern Front of the Second World War. For a better understanding of the events described in this episode, please see the maps and photos on the website beyondbarbarossa.ca or beyondbarbarossa.podbean.com. You can also listen to the episode on my own website, writtenword.ca, and click on the podcast button in the banner. Thanks to all who have supported the podcast through Patreon. Until all Ukrainian refugees can return home safely, your financial support goes to charities that help Ukrainian refugees. If you like this episode, consider following Beyond Barbarossa on your preferred podcasting app. And I'd really appreciate a rating on Apple, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, Podbean, or wherever you listen. That really helps spread the word to others interested in history. If you find I've made any errors, or if you just have a comment or a question, let me know. You can reach me by email at contact at beyondbarbarossa.ca or through the Facebook Beyond Barbarossa page. Original music was composed and recorded by Nicholas Burry. I'm Scott Burry. Till next time, keep your paddles in the water. Slava Ukraine.